0: You're listening to a message from Christian Life Ministries in Coventry. A dynamic growing church in the heart of the nation. We pray that God will speak to you through this word and impact your life for his glory. Well you're probably picking up we keep talking about going to the next level. The next level. You know if we'd stood here a year ago, if somebody had said in 12 months you'll have taken almost half a million pounds off the mortgage on the church building, we would have gone, really? Really? But that is what has happened. As Martin said last week in his preach, a miracle that has gone through our hands. We're amazed at what the Lord has done and is continuing to do. And the challenge comes to us, again, to go to the next level. And so speaking into this this morning, I've got a title which might be a bit of an unusual one for you, but the title of this message this morning is, Why Should I? Why should I? Maybe um, our household is the only one in the church where some people might have expressed a feeling of, why should I? Why should we go to the next level? You know, we're talking about going to the next level in this next season. We feel it's what God is calling us on to, calling us on as a church into the next stage of growth for CLM as a community of people being discipled to become like Jesus and to be close to Jesus. It means us growing, putting more things in place to help disciple. We're looking in this next season to multiply our mission, to help each of us connect with the places where we need to outwork the passion that God has put in us to stir a passion for those who haven't yet heard the gospel, that we'll be a church who are reaching those who are not yet saved. Whilst all the time persisting in the things that are really important to us and maintaining our momentum, we don't intend to leave anything alone that has been important to us in coming this far. There's also a challenge for us individually as we talk about going to the next level. Will we individually go to the next level in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus, in our commitment to move forward? Will we step up in our obedience? Will we pursue Jesus more? Will we seek to become more like him? The next level will look different for different ones of us. For some of us, as we mentioned a few weeks ago in a preach, the next level is about dealing with some of the damage in our lives. It's okay if that's your next level, but don't put it off for another season. Go to the next level, because there's everything that you need in Jesus Christ to move on and to get whole and to get free. For some of you, going to the next level, it might be joining a life group. Maybe you haven't done it. You keep putting it off. Maybe the next level is actually going to the life group you're meant to belong to. Does that resonate anywhere? You know, there's some simple things in our lives which if we become consistent in them will make a massive difference in our discipleship and in what God is able to do in our hearts and lives. Consistency of engaging with his word, consistency of engaging with his people week in and week out. For others of us, going to the next level, it's about taking a step in what God's asking us to do. Maybe there's something that we feel he's put in us and it's time to step out and do what he asks. But for all of us, we're being invited into a journey of faith, of obedience and surrender. That's what this language of next level means. And so not surprising, even if you've not said it, some of us might feel a little bit deep inside. Why should I? Do I have to? Do we have to? You know, I think most of us don't want to settle part way. Most of us have an idea in our head that we want to live our lives fully, we want to walk in everything God's got for us, and yet the thought of going again and pushing again, even in a next-level offering, we can think, oh, can we not just have a year off? Can we not just rest a while? Can we not just take a breather? Wouldn't it be great if we just had a little pause? Why should we push on? Why should we keep going in this season? Well... I'm going to bring us to some words in a moment that I think brings some of the answer to that question. But you know, before the summer, Anna Marie, who some of you may know, she was in our first service, she sent me a link to a message, to a preach. I don't always manage to listen to every preach that gets sent through to me, but this one I did. And I listened to it on a Friday morning as I was going around Tesco doing my shopping. I often like to not have things in my ears so I can engage with people, but that morning I just thought, I'm going to listen to something that's going to feed my spirit. And I listened to a message, and it was by John Bevere, and it was called Living With Eternity In Mind. And as he began his message, he told a story. He told a story of him going to Brazil in 2015. He'd been invited to speak to the pastors and leaders of a network of churches. And he's being driven there, and he arrives at an arena with 12,500 pastors and leaders. And he's a bit surprised at how many of them there are. But he does what he's been invited to do. And then the next day, he meets with eight of the leaders for lunch. And he says, he's trying to get his head around the scale of this network. And he's asking how many churches they've got, how many people in their churches. They say, we've got 300,000 people in the churches. He was like, so when did this begin? When was it founded? They said, this... Network began with one family in 1999. One family in 1999. So 16 years later, there were 300,000 believers in a network of churches, and it's grown this fast. At this point, John Bevere says, I'd gone to minister, but at this point I needed to learn. So I said to them, how has this happened? What has gone on here? And he says he expected to have some sort of answer like, something to do with their life groups, or some special structure, or something that they had in place, but no. The answer that he got was, we teach people about eternal reward and judgment. They said, you in America, you have a 70 or an 80 year perspective, but here we have an eternal perspective. And when you have an eternal perspective, you pursue things differently. And as he continued in his message, he, he went on and he painted a picture of what it might be like on that day when Jesus comes back, of the throne and the conversation we might have of men and women with different callings and giftings and different things put into their lives. It deeply impacted me. In fact, embarrassingly, I found myself weeping helplessly in the crisp aisle. Multi-pack of quavers in hand, completely undone. Just hoping, hoping that I didn't meet anyone I knew because it's really hard to explain when you're completely emotionally incapacitated in the crisp bile of Tesco. But you know, it's poignant that each of us finds ourselves in the midst of the unfolding eternity of God, but spending much of our time doing things like choosing which crisps to buy, See, eternity is a reality, but we often don't live with it in mind or don't think about that day when Christ will return. Now, Jesus told numbers of parables to help us try and get our heads around this, and that's where we're going to go this morning. And I'm going to read from the message this morning because it sometimes helps to keep Jesus' parables fresh. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 19, verse 11 to 27, coming up on the screen here. While he had their attention and because they were getting close to Jerusalem by this time and expectation was building that God's kingdom would appear any minute, he told this story. There was once a man descended from a royal house who needed to make a long trip back to headquarters to get authorization for his rule and then return. But first he called ten servants together. Give them each a sum of money gave them each a sum of money, and instructed them, operate with this until I return. But the citizens there hated him. So they sent a commission with a signed petition to oppose his rule. We don't want this man to rule us. And when he came back bringing the authorization of his rule, he called the 10 servants to whom he'd given the money to find out how they'd done. The first said, Master, I doubled your money. He said, good servant, great work. Because you've been trustworthy in this small job, I'm giving you, I'm making you governor of 10 towns. The second said, master, I made a 50% profit on your money. He said, I'm putting you in charge of five towns. The next servant said, master, here's your money, safe and sound. I kept it hidden in the cellar. To tell you the truth, I was a little afraid. I know you have high standards and hate sloppiness and don't suffer fools gladly. He said, you're right that I don't suffer fools gladly and you've acted the fool. Why didn't you at least invest the money in securities so I would have gotten a little interest in it? And then he said to those standing there, take the money from him, give it to the servant who doubled my stake. They said, but master, he already has double. He said, that's what I mean, risk your life get more than you ever dreamed of. Play it safe and end up holding the bag. As for these enemies of mine who petitioned against my rule, clear them out of here. I don't want to see their faces around here again. A potent and powerful story told by Jesus. Not surprisingly, it goes quiet in the room when we read a parable like that. Because most of us probably grasp that the man going from the royal house to go and be authorized is a picture of Jesus, going to ascend and go to heaven from where he will come back authorized as king to reign over all for all time. We probably understand as we read it that the servants are a picture of us, entrusted with the resource of the king was the expectation that we would be doing something with it in his absence. It's not about money. It wasn't a test of business acumen. It was a test of whether the servants, in the midst of those who opposed this king, maybe not sure if he would actually be made king or not, whether they would trade in his name, whether they would stand amidst opposition as his loyal servants, using his resources, unafraid. And then the king returned and called the servants in to find out how they'd done, not how much money they'd made. It wasn't a test of business acumen. It was a test of how much they'd been willing to openly express their devotion and loyalty to the king in his absence. Two of the servants had put the money to work. They'd used the resource they'd been given, and it had doubled as they'd done so. And they're rewarded. We hear sometimes the phrase, don't we, well done, good and faithful servant. It comes from the similar parable when it's written in Matthew 25. And one servant had not done so well. He was afraid, he hadn't taken the risk. And instead of using the resource and putting it to work, instead of making himself known Amidst the enemies, he backed off, he hid what he was given, and it says that he was found unfaithful, and even what he had was taken away. That's why it goes quiet in the room this morning, because these words speak to us, don't they? They remind us of an eternal perspective. They remind us of some things that we maybe should keep in mind. And as we come and we face again the challenge to not settle part way, as we face the call to go to the next level, to the next level in mission and in discipleship and in giving and in faith, we can find ourselves saying, why should I? But I think there's, there's some reasons here in this parable this morning that help answer that question for us and give us a reason. And I'm gonna take us through four reasons this morning, each beginning with R, just to help unpack it. So the first R this morning as to why we should go to the next level is return. Return. We should go to the next level because Jesus Christ is going to return. I know when you got up this morning, maybe you didn't think today he's gonna come back or maybe today he's gonna come back. But one day, Jesus Christ is going to return. And when whoever is in charge returns, you want to be found doing what you were meant to be doing, right? I don't know if you have memories like this of being a child. When I was a child, there was one uh, evening a week when my parents would run a life group, which meant they were fairly busy downstairs. Now, I shared a bedroom with my sister, which sometimes meant we were maybe more leaning towards naughty behavior than I would have been on my own, although I can't blame it all on her. But um, on those evenings, we'd hear the doorbell keep going. We'd know Mum and dad were both busy, and so getting to sleep and being where you were meant to be and doing what you were meant to do wasn't so important. We weren't likely to be caught out. So there would be all sorts going on on those evenings. There'd be games played. There'd be cartwheels done. There'd be jumping on the bed, all sorts of things and generally it would be fine. Although occasionally you'd then hear the steps coming up the stairs as someone came to check, find out why there was so much banging probably. And when you hear those steps, they would be quick, you'd like leg it into bed. You'd dive in, quickly get your head on the pillow and kind of look like that. (laughs) Like Like you'd been asleep for at least an hour, pretending to be doing what you were meant to be doing because the person in charge has come back. Does anybody relate to that? We know what it feels like when someone else is in charge and they're coming back and you're not doing what you should be doing. We know how it feels. But the nobleman in the story that we read, the man from the royal house, he came back as the master. He was authorized. He came back as king. And Jesus, our savior, our healer, our redeemer, the one we've sung about this morning, the one who went to the cross, the one who rose from the grave, he is also the coming king. He is the coming king. We've sung about it this morning. He will return with trumpet sound. He is coming. Jesus talked about it often himself. He used lots of phrases like, when the son of man returns... When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It comes again and again through his teaching. Jesus knew he was gonna come back. The disciples knew he was gonna return. They'd seen him ascending up into heaven, the risen Jesus. They'd stood there, in fact, it tells us in Acts chapter 1 that they watched him going up into the sky, and as they did so, men in white said to him, "'Men of Galilee, why are you staring at the sky?' I think maybe that's a little harsh. So I think I would have stared at the sky if Jesus had just been ascended in front of me. Anyone with me there? But he said, Why are you staring at the sky? He said, This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. All the disciples, they saw it, they heard it, they knew he's coming back. Jesus said it, the disciples said it, the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, he knew that Jesus was going to return. He writes about it much through his letters. There's a particular focus about it in the letter to the Thessalonians in which Paul says some things like, the Lord himself will come down from heaven. And he tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Throughout scripture we're told Jesus is coming back. He is going to return. Now, just as in the story that we read this morning, there will always be those who oppose him. There will be those who don't want him to rule. There's those who don't want him to be king. There will be those who question whether he will become king. There will even be those who don't believe that he exists and make much noise of it. But friends, the existence of his enemies or their vocalizing of his opposition will not prevent him from ruling it will not stop him coming back. You know, history tells us that Jesus Christ is real, that he is son of God who came in the flesh. His word and his actions recorded in the Bible and in other historical places. We see something of his transformational impact on millions and millions of people, beginning with a little group of terrified disciples who became fearless witnesses for him. And then coming down through the centuries across cultures, the transformational impact of Jesus Christ, changing lives, saving people, turning people around, it testifies to the fact that Jesus is who he said he is. And he said he would return. And Jesus, this incredible Lord, he is king and he is coming back. Of course, some of us may pass away before that day when he returns. And we'll be raised to face him on that day. I'm not gonna take any time to be sidetracked on that here this morning or he may return in our lifetime. Either way, I know that when he returns as king, I want to be found doing what I should be doing. And I want to go to the next level in this season because Jesus is going to return. And we should all go to the next level because Jesus is coming back. The second R this morning from this parable is report. We should go to the next level, because we will give a report. You see, the servants in the story, they were called in to give an account of what they'd done with what they'd been given. They were called on. There was some sort of appraisal of what had gone on. Now, we live in a world where this is quite normal. We would expect there to be a giving an account. If we've given some resource to someone, we would expect for them to be able to say what they've done with what was given partly why we had a financial update evening this week in the life of the church. We expect to give report of what has been given. You'll have seen a few weeks ago, we had some pictures of cows up on the screen. If you weren't here that week, you're thinking, what happened that week? We had pictures of cows because we gave some money to a missionary in Ethiopia who's training men to go and reach Muslims. And he funds that partly by raising some cows and runs a dairy business. And we were able to give some money, but we said, "Teklu, you need to tell us what you've done. You need to tell us what you've done with the money. And so he showed us the photos, sent back, told us when he'd bought the cows, kept account. We expect that, don't we? If we trust someone, we expect them to be able to tell us what they've done with what they were given. This is just the baseline of responsible leadership. Parents, if you were to give your son 50 pounds to go and buy some new school shoes because he needs some, if he came back with a coat and no shoes, finishing a McDonald's, you'd ask some questions, wouldn't you? That's very quiet, wouldn't you? (laughs) You'd ask some questions. I just want to let you know that hasn't actually happened in our house. I know it sounded very true, ring of truth, but it's never happened. But we'd ask questions as parents. We ask questions of the resource that we put in our children's hands. Any decent leader, manager, parent would call to account those to whom they've entrusted resource. We would ask, did you do it? How did it go? But sometimes we think that God would be less diligent with what he pours out. And friends, we will be called on to report what we've done with what has been given and entrusted. I think there's a level at which we can get a little confused as Christians. Because you see, we understand when we come to Christ that we come to the cross that we've sung about this morning. And we come as sinners and amazingly we find that we can be accepted and covered and forgiven because of the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. And the condemnation that should have been ours for eternity has been rolled away from us. The punishment for our sin has been borne by Jesus on the cross. So we know that at the end of all time, we will be found as those who received Jesus and whose sin is covered by him. And so we're so overwhelmed by his grace and his mercy, and his kindness, and his unfailing love for us, and rightly so. And rightly so. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But because we know that there's no condemnation, sometimes we get confused here and we think that means there's no judgment. See, we know that we're saved for eternity. We'll not get be condemned and sent away from God for all eternity, as I believe those who reject Christ will be. But it does not mean there's no judgment. They're two different things, condemnation and judgment. Judgment means to hear and decide upon, to decide after inquiry or to appraise critically. Paul, who wrote in Romans 8, verse 1, there's therefore no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. He also wrote in Romans 14:10, we must all stand before God's judgment seat. There's a distinction. It can sound like a tension, but it's not. They're just different things. For all those whose sin has not been covered by Jesus Christ... For those who go and stand before His throne on that day, trusting in their own righteousness to reach His standard, they will be found wanting. I believe the Bible makes it fairly clear that those people will face condemnation. There will be eternal consequence for their decision, an eternal sentence. That is not as. We will be saved for eternity. But there is yet an appraisal of what we've done in the body, whether good or bad, Paul says elsewhere. There will be an appraisal. Wonderfully, regardless of whether we've been faithful or unfaithful with what is put in our hands, we will still be saved. You cannot lose your salvation. Isn't that amazing? The servant in the story, even though he had not done well and the master was not pleased, He was not sent with the enemies, they were somewhere different. The servant was still in, he just didn't get rewarded. There will be an appraisal, we will have to report. I'm sure you do too, but I find this sobering, I find it challenging. You know, there's no free pass for pastors when it comes to the judgment. I don't stand here saying this glibly. In fact, to the contrary, it says in Scripture that those who teach will be judged more strictly. It's why there's some passages like this that can be uncomfortable to teach on, but we dare not leave them out, for we will stand for that judgment just like everybody else. So it means I need to keep discovering everything that God has entrusted to me and to use it fully, to put it to work, to trade in His name, to not hold back, to not pull away from taking risks for Him and acting in faith. I'm going to keep determining to not settle part way, but to fully utilize everything He puts at my disposal so that when on that day I'm called to give a report... I won't be found unfaithful, and I might be found to be a faithful servant, that I might just possibly hear him say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. On that day when he returns, I'm going to give an account, and so are you, of how we lived, of how we stewarded, what we were given, how we loved, in public and in private, seen and unseen, all those things we've not spoken to him about before. That's why for some of us it would be good to talk to him about some things now, then leave it for that day. Don't save it for that day to talk about your sin, confess it now readily to him. We're gonna talk to him about how we used our gifts for our own benefit or for him, whether we risked it all or hid what we had, whether we maxed out his resource or played it safe. Friends, we must go to the next level because we will give a report. The third R this morning is is reward. We should go to the next level because we can gain eternal reward. I can understand if we realize that there's no condemnation, then we can think, well, what's the point in judgment? What does it matter if I've got nothing to lose? You can't lose your salvation, but there is something else at stake. There is reward at stake. The servants in the story, they were given a reward. Those ones that were found faithful, the one who came and said, these ten have produced another ten, The master said to him, didn't he, great work, good work. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 towns because you've been trustworthy. They were rewarded for their faithfulness and they were given responsibility. They were put in charge of something in the king's kingdom. They were invited to reign with him as he came and took his place of power. They were invited to reign with him. He shared it with them because they'd been faithful there was a reward for them. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 10 to 15. I'm not going to go there in detail now, but you might want to read those scriptures at another point. He describes our lives as a building, and he says they'll be tested by fire on that day to test the quality of what we've built with, whether gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. He says each Man's work will be seen for what it is. If what he's built survives, he'll receive his reward. If it's burned up, he will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Each one will be rewarded according to his own labor. The quality of what we're building our lives with will be seen on that day whether we've been building with materials that endure for eternity, whether we've been building with that which comes from God, the things like faith, hope, love, mercy, grace, the things which he uses to bring his kingdom, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, obedience. These are the things that build a house that endures and that will stand on that day. Now, I'm aware this morning you could say, well, I'm not really too fussed about the reward. The key thing is that I'm in for eternity. Anybody feel a bit like that? It's okay if you do. And there's a part of that that's true. It's like the key thing is we're in for eternity. That is incredible, incredible grace and mercy from God that I do not face eternal condemnation, but I have been saved. I'm so grateful, so grateful And it causes me to love the Lord and respond to Him and to want to live my life for Him. And I hope that is happening in your life too. The Apostle Paul, he knew that he'd been saved from condemnation. And he was really bothered about the reward. In other places in scripture, Paul says, why don't you imitate me while I imitate Christ? So generally, imitating Paul is a good thing. And Paul says, I'm bothered about the prize. I'm bothered about the reward. He talks about winning a crown, not just for this life, but a crown that will endure. And he talks about putting himself into strict training to make sure that having helped others come through, he himself won't be disqualified from the prize. He took this really seriously. Paul knew the reward was worth giving something of his life for. He didn't want to miss out. He didn't want to be disqualified from this prize. And we don't get unpacked any further in scripture what the reward is. There's no promise of big houses. There's no promise of fast cars. There's no promise of a sea view or whatever else you might put your request in for. You may get them all, I don't know. We don't get told what the rewards will be. What I do know is that the one who made all beauty, who is the author of all pleasure and the source of all joy, He knows how to make a good reward. He's the one who gives good gifts, and he knows how to make a good reward. I don't know if you watch The Apprentice, but there's two teams competing, and normally the losing team have to kind of slump off to a miserable cafe to work out where they went wrong. And the winning team get a reward, some sort of experience. They fly on a helicopter or go to a spa or something else like that. I've got to tell you, God's reward will be so much better than Lord Sugar's. So much better than Lord Sugar's. And the key thing is that whatever the substance of the reward of which we don't get unpacked any further, and we can only look to the goodness of God to indicate what it would be, we do know how long it will last. This is not a reward that will be fleeting. It will not just last a while. It is eternal. It will never end, a reward that lasts for eternity, it's hard for our minds to grasp how long eternity is. Really, actually, it's impossible for a finite mind to grasp how long eternity is. Longer than the longest thing that you can ever imagine, longer than the longest sermon, longer than the longest night when you couldn't sleep, longer than the longest season that you thought would never end. It's longer than we can possibly imagine. And that's a long, 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 long time to enjoy a reward. And it's also a long, 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 long time not to have a reward. See, the point in the judgment and the point in the report is that it will inform how we enter eternity. Jesus has made it that we will enter eternity. But the report will inform how we enter eternity, as one escaping through the flames or one receiving his reward. Friends, we should go to the next level because we can gain eternal reward. So the fourth R this morning is ready. We should go to the next level to be ready for that day. Jesus will return. We will give a report. There is eternal reward at stake and we need to be ready for that day. As Jesus himself said, the day and the hour are unknown. If somebody tells you they know when Jesus is coming back, Don't spend too long thinking about when they tell you he will return. The day and the hour are unknown. It says in scripture, he'll come like a thief in the night. We need to be ready. Probably everybody in the room knows what it's like to go through a test in life a test at school, a test in some other educational setting. At the moment, my youngest child has just gone into year six, which means next summer or next May time, she'll have to do some SATs. Now, I think a lot of fuss is made about SATs, and you shouldn't really be talking to 11-year-olds now about the SATs they're going to do next May, but this is some of what goes on in our education system. But that aside, her teacher, in the last two weeks, has been running some tests in her class. And he says, the reason I'm doing this, I know they're really hard tests, but I want to see where the weaknesses are in the class. I want to see where people's weaknesses are so that I know where we need to prepare, how we can get ready. Now, it's not so much about what the kids need because it's SATs and they'll move on. But for the teacher, this is what it's all hanging on. If you're a year six teacher, the one thing your head teacher wants to know is, have you got your kids to get the SATs results they should have got? The one thing Ofsted are going to want to know, albeit amongst some other pieces of information, is how did year six do in their stats? in their sats. So the teacher knows there's a test coming, and it can seem a bit over the top in October that he's getting them to do their tests, but actually he's just preparing. He's getting ready. So I can't arrive in April next year and think suddenly I can pull it out the bag. We've got to get ready when we know a test is coming. We're wise if we prepare, if we get ourselves ready. On that day when we see him face to face, I want us to be able to look at him and know that we didn't settle partway. We didn't pull back and we didn't park up. that we didn't bury the things that he'd put in our lives that were there to bless others with, that we didn't keep the goodness of the gospel to ourselves because we got too comfortable, and we didn't live for ourselves and hold back or play safe. In that moment when we see him, I want us to know the joy of seeing face to face the one who loved us, the one who saved us, the one who went to the cross for us and made a way for us, the one whose love has changed us and transformed us, the one for whom we've lived, the one whom we've served, the one that we've obeyed, the one that we've trusted, the one we've worshipped, that we're going to see him face to face. I want us to be able to stand without regret that we might just hear him say to us, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. We're pushing on to the next level here. We're encouraging you to do that as individuals and to be part of the journey here with CLM, not because it's comfortable, but because we know God is calling us on for more. We know that in God there is more, more to do, with what he's given here into this community. There are more people to reach. If you like more sheep to bring into this field, more souls to save, to bring home for eternity. And the Lord is calling us on. He will return, he, we will give a report. There is a reward at stake and we want to be ready. I want to be ready, I want us to be ready. We would live now in readiness for that day. These are the reasons why we should go to the next level. That's why we dare to come and ask you again. Say, look, we're doing a next level offering and we invite you to ask God, what should I do? And yeah, you should do that in your finance ahead of the 5th of November. But it's not just about the money, it's about your whole life. Will you do this with your time? Will you do this with the gifts that you've got or any other resource but to come before God and say, God, what do you want me to do? And To have the courage and obedience to follow through on what he says. This is how we go to the next level. This is how we get ready to stand before him on that day is by surrender now. Allowing his plans for our lives to become the most important thing, that we would follow where he leads and that we would keep just inviting him to speak and our heart would be surrendered to him, saying, Whatever, whenever, wherever, you're the master, I'm the servant. What are you saying, Lord? So, as I come to finish this morning, I simply want to give us a moment to be still before Him and to surrender. I'm aware, a response to a message like this, it's not about a moment in church. This is about how we live our lives, how we position ourselves. But it's right to take a moment, to position ourselves to surrender to Him, to respond to Him, to respond to His words. let's just bow our heads for a moment together. In a moment, I'll pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, and that it searches out our hearts, and teaches us truth, it prepares us so that when we see you, we might be ready for that day. Jesus, we're so grateful to you that you have removed our sin and our shame. You've paid our penalty and our price. You've put your spirit in us and poured out your unfailing love into our hearts and lives. And we're so grateful. We just ask that you would help us that as we rejoice in your grace and mercy and unfailing love, That we would hold that intention with our accountability before you, and that out of a love for you we would desire to serve you, to give our lives for you, to trade in your name every day until you return. We ask that you'd fill us, Holy Spirit, and empower us to do so. Give us a boldness that we wouldn't shrink back. We wouldn't be afraid. But that in this season, we might rise up and step into all that you have for us in this next season. For your honor and for your glory and that we might rejoice when we see you face to face.